Rescuer is one who saves us, one who is willing to lay down his life for our freedoms, one who is willing to fight against tyranny, like all of you veterans have done on our behalf, against communism and terrorism and all sorts of evil, willing to lay down your life for ours, that we might be able to enjoy the benefits and the freedom of this country. So we thank you for all you've done for us and for God and country. But I'll ask you this to start. What do you think of when you think of a rescuer? I mean, imagine yourself in a burning building or you're in a dark alley and both ends there's gang members coming at you. You turn around, you look and you say, oh boy, what do I need? Who would you like to see at that moment? How about Dr. Bruce Banner? He'd be okay, but you want him to get mad so he becomes a Hulk, right? Well, do you know there's someone greater than the Hulk? Does anybody know who the Hulk becomes when he gets mad? Chuck Norris. <laughs> Thought you would have known that for sure. That's according to the internet anyhow. But you know why Chuck Norris is such a good rescuer? Because he never changes. You may have seen his emotion chart. He's consistent, right? No matter the situation, no matter the circumstance, he's always dependable. He's always in control. But you know why else Chuck Norris would be good? And I learned this on the internet. Not only does he not change, but he's all powerful. Do you know when Chuck Norris does a push-up, his body doesn't go up, the earth goes down? And he's done that before to push the earth out of the path of an asteroid. I didn't know that. He's all-knowing. It says he can divide by zero, judge a book by its cover, and he knows the last digit of pi. How about that? He's faultless. He's never dialed a wrong number. He's just made people answer the wrong phones. He's eternal. It says he remembers the future. He's everywhere. Chuck Norris doesn't need Twitter because he's already following you. And he has a book of documented feats. You may have seen it. It's called his diary, the Guinness World Book of Records. So, what other great rescuer has all of these same attributes? I'll give you a hint. Doesn't do it with closed fists, but he rescues with open hands. The Sunday school answer is Jesus, right? We're going to talk about him today. We, we tend to look for a human rescuer in all of our situations. We want someone to fix our government, heal our planet. We want the Avengers. We want the superheroes. We want the Internet Chuck Norris, right? Come on in and save the day. But we know that they're not real. But we have one that's greater than all of them combined. We should be looking to him and no other for a couple of good reasons. One is he is real. Two is he is all-powerful. But three is, he's uniquely qualified to rescue us. We just finished a series in Galatians about the rescue, the gospel of grace. We talked about how we needed to be rescued from our sin, saved from God's wrath. And we have two options. We can either trust in Christ to rescue us completely, or we can hopelessly and foolishly try to rescue ourselves by our own works. The letter focuses primarily on what we should and shouldn't do, right? We should walk by the Spirit, not after the flesh. We should seek the approval of God, not the approval of men. We should trust in Christ's finished work for our salvation, our righteousness, and our justification, not whatever man might have us to do. We should live free in Christ, not under the bondage of the law. We should understand and believe we're saved by grace, not by works or anything else, not grace plus anything else. We should trust and boast only in Christ and his cross, not in ourselves. 
Well, I want to take a little different look today as we wrap up this Galatians series, going from the gospel of grace in Galatians to the giver of grace in the book of Hebrews. If you'd like to open there to Hebrews chapter 1, we're going to talk about the rescuer, Jesus Christ. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the chair in front of you. You're free to take it. There's not one there. Take the one the person next to you has, and it's yours to keep as long as you read it. Christ has all the attributes of any superhero, plus he has far more. Three of them that I want to talk about briefly today is he is a prophet, a priest, and a king. Now I want to focus today on the king, or the, I'm sorry, the priestly aspect of Christ because that's the one. The priest is the one who actually saved us from our sin, the one who actually satisfied God's wrath. But unless we understand his role as prophet, priest, as and king, we won't see the entire picture of why he is the perfect rescuer. So if we look at the first few verses um, in Hebrews chapter one, we'll see that Christ is the final prophet. It says, in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets. I'll put this up here. It's a little small, but hopefully you can read it. At many times and in many ways. But in these days, last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he also made the universe. So here we have this uh, from the author of Hebrews saying that God sent the prophets to Israel in many times and in many ways, but the last prophet that he sent was Jesus Christ, God's mouthpiece, God in the flesh, the eternal word of God who always existed and came in the flesh, dwelt among us, and gave us the final words from God. He has given us a complete record of God's word. We can't add to it. We can't take away from it. It's the faith once delivered for all to the saints. It thoroughly equips the man of God for every good work. It's complete. Heaven and earth will pass away, but not one word of the Bible that Christ has given us will ever pass away. We know the beginning from the end because of what's recorded in this book for us. And it came to us through the greatest prophet ever, Jesus Christ. So if you believe this book is the inspired word of God, you also have to believe there is no prophet since Christ. Not Joseph Smith, who started the Mormons, or Charles Russell, who started the Jehovah's Witnesses, or not Muhammad, who started Islam, and certainly not Harold Camping. Right? There are no more prophets. He is the final prophet. But look also how he mentions that this prophet has a priestly role in verse 3. I'm going to look at Jesus as the priest. It says here, The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. This prophet did what no other prophet could do. It says that he provided purification for sins. Past tense. Done deal. This ties Christ the prophet to Christ as the priest. And after he had done this great thing of providing purification for sins, he sat down. His work was done. It was finished. We'll talk more about this in a little bit uh, later on here, but he now sits at the right hand of God, sustaining all things by the power of his word. This is a reference to his kingship. Not only is he a prophet and a priest who provided 
the, the propitiation or the purification for our sins, but he also is a ruling and reigning king. There is no other word. There is no other oracle. There is no greater prophet. There is no greater king. And we'll see that here if we look a little bit farther down in verses 8 and 13. In verse 8, he says this. This is God speaking. But about the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. Now here, God is talking to God. Some people say that Jesus never claimed to be God in the Bible. Well, God the Father says he's God right here. Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. God talks to God a lot in the Bible. God said, let us make man. Who is he talking to? He was talking to God. We'll find this even in our main passage today, that God speaks to God. The Father calls the Son God. He calls him a king with an eternal kingdom, a kingdom that will be ruled by justice. A kingdom that will never end. And in verse 13, he continues and he says, To which of the angels did God ever say, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? So here, his kingdom will be the greatest. The greatest ever. Why? Because he's greater than all the angels. The angels are greater than men, so there can be no kingdom of men, no kingdom of angels that's greater than the kingdom of Christ. He said, You, you stay here. You sit on this throne, and I am declaring as God Almighty that I will bring every one of your enemies under your feet. Now this, verse 13, is a direct quote from Psalm 110. I want to spend just a few minutes in Psalm 110 to give you the background for where we're going in Hebrews chapter 7 a little later on. Psalm 110 shows that Jesus is the eternal priest. Not only does it tie him to a king, but it shows the eternal priest. Let me start with the first three verses. Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, God talks to God, right? The triune God says to the Messiah, Jesus Christ, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing on your day of battle, arrayed in holy splendor, your young men will come to you like dew from the, mor- from the morning's womb. So the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. This is the most quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament. Five times directly and over 15 times indirectly. When you look at this passage throughout the scripture, you will see the world of open to you and heaven open to you. I wish I had time to teach all that this has to say. But it does say this, first of all, about his kingship, is that Jesus Christ is not an exiled king waiting to take his throne. Not like David hiding in a cave someplace waiting for Saul to be gone so he could take his kingship, his kingdom. Christ is sitting at the right hand of God with all power and all authority on heaven and earth He is ruling and reigning right now, and he is going to bring every enemy under his footstool. We can take hope in that when we see the world around us falling apart. It sure doesn't seem like it, but this passage says that's what's happening. But then if you look at verse 4, he ties his kingdom of Christ to his priesthood. 
The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. This all-powerful, eternal king is also a priest forever. I want to show you this from Hebrews chapter 7 today. So if you turn over a few pages, we're going to talk first about how Jesus is the greatest priest ever, greater than all of the other priests, which is a theme of Hebrews in general, that Jesus is better, Jesus is greater. He's greater, better than the angels, the prophets, Moses, Joshua. His new covenant is better than the old covenant. His blood is better than the blood of bulls and goats. And now in chapter 7, he says that Jesus is greater than Abraham. And he is a greater priest than Aaron. So let's look at the first 19 verses. I'll break them up as we go. But we want to look at Christ being the perfect priest. First three verses of Hebrews 7. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. So here the author of Hebrews is recounting the story of Genesis 14, where this priest Melchizedek is first introduced. Abraham's just had a great victory, and now this priest seems to come out of nowhere, walks up to him and blesses Abraham, and Abraham returns by giving him a tithe of all the spoils from that victory. Some think that this was an appearance of Christ, that it was a Christophany, one of him, his times that he showed up in the Old Testament. May or may not be, but Christ is purely and, and, and closely tied to this king Melchizedek. Now, names mean something in the Old Testament. Um, they don't necessarily as much anymore. We don't take names um, from the Bible and name our children them very often anymore with the true meaning. I, my mom told me that I was going to be named Theo. And I said, really? She goes, yeah, after Theophilus, the one who Luke wrote his book of Acts to. And I said, cool, Theophilus means friend of God. I could deal with that. And she said, no, it wasn't based on the Bible. Your dad held you for the first time and said, this is Theophilus-looking baby I've ever seen. <laughs> <Ba-dum-bum>. <laughs> Verse 9. So we don't name our kids Theophilus very often, nor do we name them Melchizedek, right? There are names that we don't use in Scripture, and the reason being is that he tells us here that Melchizedek, by his very name, the translation of his name means king of righteousness. Hi, this is my new son, Melchizedek. He's the king of righteousness. We don't do that. We don't name because we understand what these names mean. So here we know that he is the king of righteousness. It tells us that. But then it says he's also the king of Salem. That is the king of peace, the king of Jerusalem, right? That he is going to be the king of peace, the king of righteousness. We know that. By name, we know who he is. It tells us he's a king, eternal in origin, with no end of life. But we also know that he is a priest. What does it say at the end here? Resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. So here we have the author of Hebrews saying the same thing as Psalm 110. This great ruling king is also a priest forever of the order of Melchizedek. Let's look at verses 4 through 10. Just think how great he was. 
Even the patriarch Abraham gave him a tenth of the plunder. Now the law requires the descendants of Levi who become priests to collect the tenth from the people, that is, from their fellow Israelites, even though they also are descended from Abraham. This man, however, did not trace his descent from Levi, yet he collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. And without doubt, the lesser is blessed by the greater. In the one case, the tenth is collected by people who die, but in the other case, by him who is declared to be living. One might even say that Levi, who collects the tenth, paid the tenth through Abraham, because when Melchizedek paid Abraham, Levi was still in the body of his ancestor. Now, here's a lot of confusing things about who's being born when and how and who's getting tithes. But the point is here that Abraham was blessed by Melchizedek. The lesser is blessed by the greater, which means Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. That's the point that he's making here that he is greater. Now, this was news to the Jews at the time. Their father, Abraham, was less than this person, Melchizedek. So if we continue on, he talks more about the perfection of Melchizedek. In verses 11 through 19, if perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, and indeed the law given to the people established that priesthood, why was there still need for another priest to come? One in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron. Now, Aaron, you remember, was Moses' older brother. They were both Levi's, so Aaron was the first Levitical priest. So often Levitical and Aaronic priesthood are interchanged, right? For when the priesthood is changed, the law must be changed also. He of whom these things are said belonged to a different tribe, and no one from that tribe has ever served at the altar. For it is clear that our Lord descended from Judah. And in regard to that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. And what we have said is even more clear if another priest like Melchizedek appears, one who has become a priest not on the basis of a regulation as to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. For it is declared, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Psalm 110.4 The former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless, for the law made nothing perfect, and a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. What does it mean the Levitical priesthood wasn't perfect? Does it mean they made a few mistakes? My wife calls me perfect. What does she mean when she says that? Would you like to come up and tell everyone? No? No, she does Okay, I'm surprised. Um, you know, she probably has a checklist. Well, I wanted a guy that was Christian. He'd be a good husband, a good father, a, a good provider, has a sense of humor. Check, 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 check. He's perfect. You get a perfect score on a test, right? Check, 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 check. Got all the right answers. Perfect. This is what the dictionary says perfect is. Conforming absolutely to the description or definition of an ideal type. Excellent or complete beyond practical or theoretical improvement meets all qualifications now and always in every realm. If something is perfect, it can't be improved upon, ever, in any realm, in any way. Am I still perfect here? No. Beyond practical or theoretical improvement, the ideal type, the standard, the Levitical priesthood wasn't even close to that. Not only wasn't it perfect, it couldn't make anyone perfect. And the Levitical priests often were abusing their people. And it calls them here weak and useless priests. Strong words. By contrast, Melchizedek's priesthood is perfect. 
the perfect priest. Complete in every way. Not able to be enhanced, lacking nothing, abundant in everything, not in the least bit inferior to anything, but superior to everything. Unable to be improved, not temporal, but eternal. Perfect. Christ's priesthood, the perfect one, had to replace Levi's imperfect priesthood. So Christ comes as the perfect priest of the order of Melchizedek. It says here that he was totally separate from the Levitical priests because he was not of the tribe of Levi. He was the tribe of Judah, and no one from Judah has ever served as a priest. The other amazing thing is no king could serve as a priest in the Old Testament. Some tried with disastrous results. A king could never be a priest. And here we have the eternal king of kings coming to serve as the perfect priest. The Levitical priesthood was set aside by God. This priesthood, it says, has to come with a new law. It has to come with a new covenant, a superior covenant that's established on better promises, a better hope, better things. It's guaranteed by Christ, it says. And one of the things that this covenant allows us to do is to draw near to God, something the Levitical priests couldn't do. They could draw near to God once a year when they entered into the Holy of Holies with a blood sacrifice, and they could atone for our sins on our behalf. But if we followed them in there, boom, we're gone. But when Christ died at Calvary, the veil between us and the throne room of God was torn. And we now, as royal priests ourselves, have access by the blood of Christ to come boldly before the throne of God, abolishing the need for a priesthood to go on our behalf. I want to skip verses 20 to 22 for a few minutes and look at verses 23 to 28. This is where I want to focus today. It shows that Jesus' priesthood is superior to the Levitical one. Not only is he the final priest and the ultimate perfect great high priest of God, but he's also a permanent priest. Look at verses 23 and 24. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Levitical priests died. So the office was constantly being overturned. They had to keep bringing more and more priests in because they kept dying. The reason why they died is they were all sinful. The wages of sin is death. Christ took upon our sin, but he was not liable for our sin, so sin did not cause him to die. He laid down his life voluntarily for us, and he did not stay dead. Right, Romans 6, 9, 10 says, We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Once for all, Christ provided a sacrifice for us, one that we desperately needed. We need a priest. We need someone to mediate for God, with God on our behalf. We need someone to fulfill all these provisions and necessities of the covenants. We can't do those. But we have one. We have a high priest who lives continually, will never die, will never be replaced. That sets him apart from all the other priests and makes him superior. We have no priest but Jesus because we need no priest but Jesus. Not only is he permanent, but he's powerful. Look at verse 25. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. He is utterly able to save. The Old Testament priests could not save anyone. 
It was not innate in themselves, the power to do it, nor was it imputed to them, given to them the right to forgive sins or save a soul. There are many priesthoods around today in many different denominations. None of them can forgive your sins or save your soul. Only the high priest, Jesus Christ, can do that. The priests themselves need salvation. Jesus is completely different than them. He did not need salvation. He was sinless, and therefore he is able to save. Your Bible might not say to the uttermost. It might say eternally or completely. Not a good word. Uttermost is the word. It really represents the unrestricted nature of Christ's ability to save. No limit to it. No limit to his saving ability. No sin too great. It's been said that Christ is able to save from the guttermost to the uttermost. Very worst of sinners to pure, spotless, holy, righteous people before God. Who does he save? Verse 25 says he saves those who draw near to God. Those who draw near. Believers. Those who have finally realized, I need a Savior. I'm going to stop running from him, but I'm going to turn from my ways. I'm going to repent and I'm going to turn toward God. I'm going to draw near to him. That's real different to draw near to a perfect high priest than it is to draw near to an earthly priest. We can draw near because we can now come boldly before the throne and receive this uttermost salvation. And it says another amazing thing here, that he always lives to make intercession for us. We should just let those words sink in for a minute. I don't think we actually understand that at every moment Christ is representing us before the throne of God, based on his work, not ours. As we pray, he prays on our behalf. He is the God-man. He was tempted in all ways as we were. He can sympathize with us in our weaknesses, but he also can speak to God. He's uniquely in that situation as the only mediator between God and man because he's both the creator and part of the creation. He's the only one that can do that. So when he understands our temptations and weaknesses and he takes our prayers and says, I know they're praying for that, but what they really mean is this, God. Let me intercede for them. At every moment for every believer, something only an infinite mediator could do. He's interceding for that. That is powerful. That is something we need. So his priesthood is permanent and powerful. It's also pure. In verse 26, for it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. He is pure, sinlessly perfect, utterly and completely holy. The Old Testament priests were far from that. Christ will never do us wrong. He is holy. That's his relationship to God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The triune God is holy. He is holy. He is innocent. That is in his relationship to us as human beings. I find no fault in this man. He was sinless. He is unstained. That's his internal purity. There is nothing within Christ that is blemished. Unstained. He is separate from sinners. He was able to come and live among us and eat with us and minister to us, but he was never contaminated by us. He was able to draw near to us as sinful humans so that we could draw near to him. And then, of course, it says here that 
he was exalted above the heavens. Another reference to Psalm 110, where he was raised and seated at the right hand of God, where he continues his saving and intercessory work without interruption. Highly exalted. Superior to all the other priests because he's sinless. So his priesthood is permanent, it's powerful, it's pure, and it's propitiating. Big biblical word means that he is able to satisfy God's wrath. I was going to use the word pacifying or purifying, but propitiating is the biblical word. He is able to take the wrath of God that we deserve and satisfy it so that we no longer see it. Verse 27. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. The Old Testament priests had to come in and offer a sacrifice for themselves and then for the other people. But they didn't sacrifice themselves. They sacrificed animals. They had to find one that was unblemished that they could sacrifice. But here it's saying that Jesus is both the high priest offering the sacrifice and he's the sacrificial lamb himself, unblemished. He paid the price by taking his own life as high priest offering a perfect sacrifice. And it says that he had no need to offer daily like the priest did because he had no sin. The priest had to come every day and offer a sacrifice for their own sin. He didn't have to do that. So instead, our advocate is also our propitiation, right? Our defense lawyer is also the one who paid for our freedom. He did it once for all. Once for all, when he offered up himself. His shed blood has infinite value in quality and efficiency. Once for all, never to be repeated. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, but to bring you to God. Romans 6.10, For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. Hebrews chapter 10 and 11 through 13, Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifice which can never take away sin. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. Psalm 110. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Do you get the sense that that one offering was sufficient for all time, for all sins? It perfects all those who believed. He sat on the cross, it is finished, and he sat down. He sat down from his salvific work on the cross of making the unrighteous righteous, sanctifying those of us who needed it. He has perfected those who are being sanctified, it says. Past tense. He has perfected. The blood of bull and goats could never take away sin, but Christ's blood has fully satisfied the wrath of God. Nothing else can rescue us but the blood of Christ. No more need for sacrifice, other than we are to bring him the sacrifice of praise for what he's done. Or we're to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, which is a reasonable worship. But there is no need for another shed blood of any animal or any person. His offering that he made once made him a unique priest and effectively abolishes the need for any priesthood. It's done. We have no other priest than Christ, because we need no other priest than Christ. 
One more thing about him. He's the promised priest. In verse 28, For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. If you look back up at verses 20 to 22, it talks about how God made Christ a priest on an oath. It says in verse 20, And it was not without an oath. Others became priests without any oath. But he became a priest with an oath when God said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. Psalm 110.4 Because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantor of a better covenant. Why do we swear on a Bible? If we really want to say that something's true, so help me God, we swear on something that's greater than us. If you want to turn back to Hebrews 6, verse 16 through 20, it talks about this. It says, For people swear by something that's greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. Right? So help me God, I'm telling you the truth. Done, finished, there's no more. It's final. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, when God wanted to show us the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things, which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have this strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steady anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. One thing, God has an unchangeable character, and another thing, he cannot lie. And he made Jesus a priest of the order of Melchizedek forever by his oath. He swore to it by himself. This makes him the promised priest. And who did he do that for? It said he wanted to convince us, those who are being redeemed. He wanted to convince us that we do have such a high priest, so he swore by himself. He made no oath with the Levitical priesthood. He didn't swear to it. He didn't bind himself to it. He didn't say anything about its duration. But he has sworn to Christ's priesthood, and he will not repent. He will not change his mind. The oath that he made is that Christ would be a priest forever. This makes Jesus the one who can guarantee the better covenant. No one, no thing in heaven or earth can ever interfere with Christ continuing his role as high priest he can take the old covenant that was written in stone tablets and he has replaced it with a new covenant written on a heart of flesh. And he says that you will now know me and I will minister to you personally. And he said that there is nothing that you have to worry about because God has given his oath that I will be able to do this for you forever. And in Hebrews 6 it says this should provide for us a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. This should give us hope that things are happening in heaven on our behalf, it says. Because Christ is the greatest priest. He's perfect. He's permanent. He's powerful. He's pure. He's propitiating. And he's been promised to us. The prophet, the priest, the king. Without God's grace, we'd all be hopelessly lost, and God knew that. So he sent his prophet son into the world to give us the gospel, the good news. That by simple belief in his death, burial, and resurrection, his one sacrifice on the cross, that we could become heirs in an eternal kingdom with the King of Kings. A king that will never be dethroned. All competing kingdoms 
everywhere will eventually be brought under his footstool, become subject to this great high priest who is utterly and completely able to save us. He offered himself up once time, one time for all sin, ended the need for sacrifices, ended the need for the shedding of blood, and he replaced the earthly priesthood with a new covenant. And he became the mediator of that covenant between us and God. And he lives forevermore, standing before the throne, representing us. And from that throne, throne, he will one day come to judge the living and the dead. He's not just a better priest. He's a perfect priest. Eternal, complete. We have no need for another rescuer. None. Why should we look to one? Why should we try to add to Christ? That's something the foolish Galatians would do. And if I could tell you what Paul would tell them, same thing here today. Stop it. Stop trying to add to Christ. Surrender to him. You can't save yourself. You know, if you're drowning and someone comes out to try and save you, what do you try to do? Kick and scream and fight and try to take the rescuer down with you. That's what so many people try to do. Thanks for trying to save me, but i got to help you here. And what you're doing is basically drowning the rescuer as he takes you to safety. Don't try to add to what he's done. Yield to him. Let him take you where he's going to take you. Offer him your sacrifice of praise. Confess your sins to him, and he's faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Draw near to him, and he will draw near to you. A good friend of mine, Mike Canham, helped me understand this passage. He also gave me this quote from Thomas Hewitt. The high priest characteristics have just been described as most suited to our needs. By his death, in which he made purification for sins, he can draw men near to God. By his experience of temptation and trials, he can sympathize with his children and their infirmities. By his enthronement on high, he can meet every need. By the permanency of his life, he can save completely. And by his prevailing advocacy, he can bring the blessings and favors of God upon all believers. The next few verses in Hebrews chapter 8, 1 and 2, he says this. Now the point of what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. Another reference to Psalm 110, Christ the priestly king. Another exhortation to fix our eyes on him. The author telling us, live your life in light of the superiority of Jesus Christ. All he is and all he's done. I heard the book of Hebrews best summarized with one line. Keep at it. Jesus is worth it. So Memorial Day, we can remember all of the men and women who have died that we might be free. But all of those acts together don't add up to the one single act of the ultimate sacrifice of God in the flesh coming to die for our sins that we can live free forevermore. All the people that Chuck Norris and the superheroes will ever save will die again. But when Christ saves you, it's for eternal life. So thank a veteran this weekend, but memorialize Christ. Thank him for what he did, what he does, as our prophet, our king, and our priest. How he rescued us from sin, from death, from ourselves, and swapped that with eternal life. Let me close with one more quote from Hebrews chapter 4, 14 through 16. Since then we have a high great priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. 
For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Keep at it. Jesus is worth it. He's worth it. Let's pray. Father, how can we even approach a passage like this? Could we be humbled anymore by your gracious act of love and sending your Son to die for us when we only deserve death and your wrath? To watch your Son die an agonizing death because you loved us when we were in rebellion against you. And now here we stand before your throne opened by His grace, opened by His blood. And we can thank You for the freedom that we have. Those of us that know You, Lord, have been set free. The truth has set us free. And we pray that those here today that have not yet been set free, that You would open their hearts and minds and eyes, that they could see the glory of this King, that they could understand this precious blood was shed for them for their sin, and it's sufficient to save them and bring them into Your kingdom. Father, may we bring glory to You And all we say and do, may we this weekend and every day reflect on Christ, the glorious prophet, priest, and king. It's in his name we pray. Amen.